Let's start with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we come to you bringing nothing. We bring nothing but our own sin, our own lack of anything of value. And we thank you and praise you that even though we come to you as we are, by your grace, through faith, you make us alive together with Christ. We pray that this morning that you would just open the eyes of our heart to understand uh, just the truths and the doctrine, the theology of faith alone a little bit better. We pray that you would bless this time, bless the time with the kids that are down the hall. Pray that you would work through their teachers. We pray for um, the many people that we have in Cal 101. We pray that you would um, let your truth through your word be wrung out for this next hour throughout this campus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. So, we have, now I guess this is the third week of our five-week series where we've been going through the five solas of biblical Christianity. Or, and we've mentioned this each week, but sola being Latin for alone, these are five points that were points of doctrine that the reformers clung to during the Reformation, and it was set up in contrast to the teaching of the church of the day, the Catholic church. And if you look on your handout, we have one succinct statement that really encapsulates what are all of these five alone statements, these five solas, and how do they fit together? And so it says, as revealed by Scripture alone, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so as we've made our way through Scripture and God's sovereign grace, this morning what we're going to take a look at is faith alone, the third pillar of the five solas. So let's go ahead and start with a question of what is faith. And so that we can kind of understand what we're getting into, today is going to be a little bit more of a shotgun blast of a study. Not, uh, um, and what I mean by that is we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages and verses and putting them all together. It paints the picture of what faith alone is. And we're, we're going to see actually a little bit and even touch, touch base on how much these middle three, grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, they bleed into each other because one, one pastor was saying this is the most succinct um, gospel that you can give. 
you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so they overlap each other. And actually this, <laughs> this week, I went through and took a big section of what was in this lesson. And I was like, this is actually probably Christ alone. So I cut that, pasted it into next week's lesson that I haven't start putting, started putting together yet. And, uh, um, and, and we're going to see that this is going to really carry over from what we learned, talked about last week. It's going to lap over into what we're looking at next week. And, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, but let's start looking at what is faith alone. And so, as members of a Bible church, Tell me, where are we going to turn to if we're going to talk about faith? What chapter? Hebrews 11. That's right. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11 with me, if you would. So let's look at the first verse for a little bit. Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let's talk about these a little bit. So assurance, you know, this could, could be understood as a steadfastness of mind. It's a firmness or even courage or resolution, resoluteness. So an assurance is a determined steadfastness resolving in your mind of something. But notice, what is the steadfastness of mind that it talks about? What is the firmness or the resoluteness about? It is this steadfastness in things hoped for. You hope because you do not have it in your hands yet. Hoping is, it's not what you think of sometimes in in our culture today, oh, I hope something's going to happen. I hope the Cowboys, you know, can break 500. Something likely that won't happen, but we hope that it will. Um, did I say that out loud? <laughs> so it, it's not something that we hope will happen, but it probably won't. But it's actual, actually a hopeful trust. We hope that something is going to happen. It's trusting because you have this fixed resolution in your mind. So if you have an assurance of things hoped for, there is this firm conviction or resolution within yourself that something that you have not held in your hands yet is going to be there. It is a conviction of hope, the assurance of things hoped for. But notice it also is a conviction of things not seen. And the word, this word conviction, it's actually only used two times in the New Testament, one here in Hebrews, but uh, the, the definition of the conviction, it could also be convicting evidence. Okay, think of a courtroom, and if you have convicting evidence of something, it now is something that gives you assurance that something is true. And the other place, and this will help us understand, the other place where this is actually used is 2 Timothy 3.16, which is talking about that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
where if you are going to be reproving somebody for something, if they are in error and they need to be corrected, you're going to bring to them something that shows you are in error. There is convicting evidence of where you are wrong. Now change, right? And so you have a conviction or this idea of a certainty that comes with convicting evidence that things that are not seen yet are true. If it's not seen, it's not perceived by sight. Things that you haven't personally, visually, physically put your hands on yet. Things that you don't have, maybe it's the power to personally see. So if you have this conviction, this evidence-based conviction that things you have not physically touched and seen yet are true, this is faith. Faith is that you have convicting evidence of things that are not visible. Faith is having a firmly fixed confidence in things that you have a hopeful trust in. I'm confident that what I have not put my hands on is true and I can rest on it with trust. If you think of Thomas, one of the apostles, he, when he wanted to put his hand inside the wound of Christ, this was not faith. This is the opposite of faith. He wanted to look and touch. He saw this is not faith. Faith is possessing an evidence and proof-based conviction of things that you have not seen yet. If you look actually down a few more verses in Hebrews 11, understanding that this is what faith is, let's look at verse 6 of Hebrews 11. And without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, two words from Hebrews 11.6. First, you have faith, and then you have belief. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe. So let's look at these two words. And if you look on your handout, if you can see it, it's actually um, the, the two words in the Greek are there. And, and I put them both printed because you can see how similar they are in the Greek. One is pistis, faith, and the other one is pistiuo. So they're very similar words just visibly, visibly and also phonetically. But here's what's interesting. If you look up in the dictionary, what is the definition of pistis, which is faith, and what is the definition of pistiuo, belief, this is what I found. Faith is to believe, to trust. And belief is to have faith, to trust. So I think there's blanks. You can actually put those blanks right there. It's like, what is faith? 
Faith is to believe. What is belief? That is to have faith. And this is going to be important to understand because we're going to be looking at a lot of verses and different passages that talk about believing and talk about having faith. They are the same thing. From from this passage in uh, verse 6, there's three truths that we can see here. First, faith, belief is required to please God. Faith is required to believe God. Belief, faith, is required to draw near to God. If you want to please God, you must have faith. If you want to draw near to God, you must have faith. And then the third is faith. It is belief in God. It is belief in God. Now, when you hear this, some of you may have said, we've got a problem, though. If you look at this passage, look again at what it is saying. Whoever would draw near to God must believe. We must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him, right? So what is our problem? No one would draw near to God. No one seeks for God. No one will do what Hebrews 11.6 says is required. This is the problem. And if you even think back to last week when we looked at Romans 3, starting verse 10, what we highlighted last week is the same problem today. That it says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. So, understanding that, and we look at Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, but no one would draw near to God. No one would seek for God. On his own, man will not, and I would say cannot, have faith in God. This is where the sovereign grace of God alone intersects with faith alone. And we can actually start our, begin, our lesson today. Let's actually uh, look briefly at what we talked about last week in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And this is not of yourselves. And this, remember, (laughs) grammatically, if you remember from the lesson last week, this, it's not referring to just the grace It's not referring to just the faith. What it must be referring to is the entire section of the salvation that God offers and provides to those who are his. Starting in verse 1, where 
this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God going all the way through to the end of that passage. Your death to life is the gift of God. Your being a monument to God's grace in your salvation is the gift of God. It's not your own doing. The grace that is given to you by its very definition is God's gift of grace to you and the faith that you have. The faith is a gift of God's grace. The entire package of salvation, this is not your own doing. It refers back to the entire passage, including the faith through which we are saved. Your faith through which God saves you is a gift, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And I'm, we're going to do something we haven't had the opportunity to do, to do very much before, um, in the last two lessons, but we're going to look a little bit at some of the history of the Reformation, and we're going to see where the faith alone explodes. And we're going to look at Luther. This truth where the faith of God is the gift of God, or the faith is a gift of God's grace, this is the truth that Luther discovered in 1519. So, who knows the year that the 95 theses were nailed onto the um, castle door? Does anyone know? 1517, okay? Two years after the 95 theses. And I, this, was, this had not occurred to me prior to this lesson, that... I'll tell you, Luther was lost when he nailed the 95 Theses. And um, th this, is, this is neat when you think of it this way. Two years after this, we have what's called Luther's Tower Experience. Okay? So he's sitting and meditating over Romans 117. And 117 says, For in it, referring to the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me actually read some of Luther's own words when he talks about his conversion experience in this tower. And, and for this purpose, I actually put... One of the reasons we're so small, well, two reasons. I couldn't figure out how to do the stapler automatically thing. So I had to fit it onto one page front and back. But also, so that you can have it, I put this entire passage on the back. Don't turn there yet. But um, I don't want you to read part two. We're going to look at just part one of what he wrote. But um, you, you can turn there. Let's go ahead and read along with me. But I'm going to read, um, read to you Luther's own words. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction or my works that I was doing to satisfy God's wrath. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness or the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, 
As if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, without having God added pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He's saying, Paul, what do you want from me? As I read Romans 1.17, talks about the righteousness of God. And if, if you caught this in what he was saying, his understanding of the righteousness of God The righteousness of God is God's righteous judgment on sinners. And if God's righteousness, if the righteousness of God is revealed to the sinners through the gospel, what Paul is, or what Luther is seeing is God's judgment, his wrath is poured out on believers through the gospel. Thence, the anger the frustration. What do you want from me? Let me tell you a little bit about what his life looked like, his life journey, living underneath this old understanding of the righteousness of God. So he was studying to be a lawyer, was almost there. He threw a lot of his education, and, and many of you probably already know this, that he almost died during a thunderstorm when a thunderbolt um, struck right next to him, knocked him down. And he cries out to St. Anne, the patron saint of the miners, because his father was a miner, and um, cries out to St. Anne to save him. But through this experience, he recognizes and realizes his own mortality. He saw how close he was to death. And the problem is, he also saw and knew his own sinfulness and his inability to please God. So what does he do? He abandons his career he's headed on to be a lawyer and becomes a monk. And some people um, have, and I've read this a couple places, some people understood, well, he became a monk because he promised God, if you will let me survive this thunderbolt, then um, I'll be a monk. And he didn't want to break his promise to God. But Um, What I've seen other places that I think is actually the way that it more likely was, his desire to be a monk was because he knew how close he was to death. It was only a matter of time, and he knew his sinfulness, so he had to do the most or the best job he could at placating the wrath of God that was poured out upon him. So what he decided to do was become a monk to earn God's approval. So the only way to do this is to become, the, become a monk within the harshest or most severe order of monks, which is the Augustinian monk. The Augustinians, these are the Navy SEALs of monks, okay? You don't become an Augustinian monk because you want... It easy, right? This is where you go if you are going to be most 
severe on yourself. And his attempt was to be able to be as severe as possible so that he could be exalted before God and earn, earn um, God's affections. He almost killed himself while he was trying to be a monk in the Austinian order. He would sleep outside in the freezing temperatures so that God would see what he is doing and find merit in what he has done. He spends hours in the confessionals. If salvation could be earned by monkery, he would have earned it. But the problem is Luther knew that he hadn't. He ultimately became a priest. And if you think about the theology of what the Catholic Church taught and therefore what he believed, he believed that the wine in the cup he held and the bread in the plate were the literal blood and body of Christ. And the first time he was giving, giving communion and he looked into the cup and recognized that he had the literal blood. Now, he didn't, but this is what he believed. That he had the literal blood of a righteous and wrathful Christ in his hands. And he saw how sinful and corrupt his heart was. He nearly collapses. He realizes that even as a priest, he has not earned favor with God. He ultimately became a professor of Bible at Wittenberg University. And his, his head ends up sending him to Rome. He says, you need to go to Rome, hopefully so you can be inspired, so that you can look and, and fix yourself, honestly, is what he was trying to get Luther to do. But the problem is, as Luther climbed up steps that were supposedly the steps that Christ walked up on his way to, to um, Pilate, he crawled up these steps, stopping at each step, saying the Lord's Prayer, kissing the step, going to the next one, progressing all the way up to the top, got to the top and recognized and realized that he had no assurance that what he had just done had changed his standing before God in any way. On top of that, he looked and saw the priests that were in Rome and how they were pursuing unrighteousness, they were pursuing unholiness, and they were pursuing harlotry. And he realized that none of this could change his standing before God. Then he looked at indulgences, which we've alluded to before, but in short, the indulgences were promises by the Pope that if you pay me money so that we can build St. Peter's Basilica, then what I'm going to do is, by the authority invested by God, supposedly, I'm going to actually forgive your sins, pay me money, I will write you out an indulgence, give it to you. Your sins or your family's sins can be forgiven and you can be released from purgatory. Which again, just to make sure, does not exist. As an unbeliever, he looked at Johann Tetzel, who sold these indulgences, and said, there's no way that you can bribe God with a coin when my works are unable to do that. 
Tetzel, one of the things that he would, was known for, he would say, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. We thought the prosperity gospel was bad. But literally, what they are doing is saying, if you give me money, it's not that you will be blessed with wealth. If you give me money, then your soul will be freed from the hellfire and the wrath of God. And Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of issues he saw within the Catholic Church. He was convinced that all of these works that you could do are useless and cannot make you right before God. Then in 1915, in a tower, he was reading, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther's new understanding of the righteousness of God is that what God demands, God provides through faith. The righteous live as a gift of God, namely the gift of faith. He recognized that Christ was actively righteous on our behalf. He lived 33 years on this earth righteously. And God gave me the gift of faith, and God gave me the gift of his righteousness. And through this faith, I am righteous before God. All my filth is laid upon Christ. All God's righteousness is laid upon me. This righteousness is a foreign righteousness. He understood what Paul was preaching and writing in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21, where he says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand, and it's crazy to think about, that salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone had been lost in the church. For a thousand years, the church, the only church, had not taught this. And then in a tower in the Wartburg Castle in, 19, in 1519, the gospel was the power of God to salvation to Luther. He read the gospel, he understood the gospel, and he believed. So let me continue on how Luther described his conversion. Where he says, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Context is key. That's right. 
I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us. The power of God with which he makes us wise. The strength of God. The salvation of God, the glory of God, and I extolled my sweetest word with the love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word, righteousness of God. Thus, in that place, in Paul, was for me truly the gate to paradise. Amen? Yeah. Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I almost messed it up. (laughs) I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, let me kind of give a little side note. There's a a few different understandings of what this phrase would mean, from faith to faith. And MacArthur, for example, he would would, um, hold that it is saying it's from faith to faith. As one person is saved, that person shares the gospel and It now brings faith in the next person. And he actually wrote, it could be said from faith to faith to faith to faith as the gospel spreads, bringing the righteousness of God into each one who has faith. Um, And I actually prefer um, the way Steve Lawson, I think this actually makes more sense. Um, and, and, And both of them had good reasons as to why they held to it. But I think Steve Lawson, what he says is this, and I'll quote, he says, I am convinced that when Paul states from faith to faith, he is saying it is from faith start to finish. In other words, the Christian life is begun by faith, but having entered the kingdom of God, we continue to live by faith. In fact, we will conclude our Christian journey by faith. That is, from faith, addressing saving faith, Then, when Paul says to faith, that is living daily by faith. That is walking by faith, moment by moment, to the end of the Christian life. Lawson would say that you must live your life by faith, just 
as you were saved and started your Christian life by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And, and this makes sense when you look, um, and so many verses you could look at, but Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is a good one, where, where it just says, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even your daily living, your life is dependent upon God. Both your willingness to work and your working itself is from God. Faith embraces that even our lives are lived by faith, dependent upon God. The righteous, we don't do something to move from faith at salvation to something other than faith in our daily lives. It is from faith to faith. And this will actually come into play as we look at how this applies to us. But for now, let's actually ask the question. What is it that you have to have your faith in? And Paul introduces this actually in a few verses earlier in Romans 1, starting in verse 1. What is our faith? And this is where we're going to see it overlaps with in Christ alone next week's, next week's lesson. But in verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So the gospel of God is the subject matter at hand. The gospel of God is God's gospel. It is his good news. And so this gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel, its source is in Scripture, and it's concerning his son. The content of the gospel is about his son. The good news of God is about his son. His son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was fully man. He was David's descendant. But he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So the son who was man, descended from David, was the son of God. He was no mere man. Who is this? Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the content of the gospel. Jesus, specifically the man. Christ, specifically the Savior. Our Lord, specifically the one authority overall, including sin and salvation and life and death and judgment and forgiveness. And it's through whom, through Christ, that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Christ. This gospel, which is all about Christ, who saves us for the sake of his name, this gospel is the power of God to salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith to faith. So I want to take some time and look through the Gospel of John. And this is actually, um, these, these verses, um, we won't touch Acts, but there's belief throughout the, the book of Acts. There's belief throughout the book of John. And um, these references are on your sheet here. But we're going to show how John shows that belief is not optional. It is not secondary. Belief is primary in salvation. And the belief is focused on the object of Christ. So if you look, as you go through, only those who believe will enjoy life in the age to come. It says, the children of God are limited to those who believe in Jesus' name. So those who don't believe, they are excluded from the family of God. All who believe have eternal life. We've got multiple verses that, that teach that. And all who believe in the Father already possess life. And those who refuse to believe... They are condemned, they stand under God's wrath, and they will die in their sins for refusing to believe in Jesus. The Gospel of John is chock full, and this is such a sampling, but it's chock full of the necessity to have faith and believe in Christ. And after his conversion, Luther saw salvation by faith. Salvation through belief alone everywhere in Scripture. He saw God's righteousness was gifted apart from works. And he saw that works, the very works that he had spent decades trying to perfect, all they did was bring guilt. And a few examples of this in Romans chapter 4, starting verse 3. For what does the Spirit say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, this is so important. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you look in Acts 13, this is Paul actually speaking in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. What are they freed from? Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Faith frees you from the vain struggle of salvation by works. In Romans 9, starting in verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. So the Gentiles who were not working for righteousness, they actually attained it. 
That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based by works. Pursuing righteousness by faith leads to the righteousness of God. Pursuing righteousness by works leads to guilt. So these and countless other passages, they just exploded in Luther's understanding when he understood that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So we've got enough time here. Let's go, and I want to look at John chapter 6. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And I want to look at a passage that clearly walks us through Christ demonstrating that faith and works are incompatible when it comes to eternal life. Through this, we are going to see what a false faith looks like, and we're also going to see what a saving faith looks looks like. And this is taking place right after the feeding of the 5,000. And the crowd saw Christ send his disciples in a boat across the sea, and Christ stayed. Um, And then the next morning, Christ is with his disciples. So verse 25, read with me here. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to them, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So signs, and this is going to come up a couple times, signs... These are miraculous events that confirm the authenticity of a divine messenger. So Christ is telling them, you aren't coming here to me to see signs to confirm the message that I'm giving. You're coming because I fed you. You're like college kids. You bring food and they come, right? This is what these guys were doing. They said, you came because... I filled your bellies. Don't work to fill your bellies. That bread won't last. Instead, work to gain the food that leads to eternal life. And the Son of Man will give it to you. And the Son of Man, this is an Old Testament title referring to the coming Messiah. And this is one of Christ's favorite titles to refer to himself by. So, verse 28, And then they said to them, This is key. What must we do to be doing the works of God? So like a good Jew, Jesus mentioned eternal life. And what did the Jews do? Eternal life? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What works 
do I need to do that are the works of God? The works of God being the works that will approve me before God so I can endure to eternal life. And um, he says, they, they turn to the works of the law because, again, in their mind, the works of God are what lead to eternal life. So we understand why they asked that question, but Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And this isn't just this is the work of God if you believe that it's God's working it. It is actually the work of God that leads to eternal life is you believing in him. The work of God is actually not your work. The work of God is faith. It is belief. In essence, they are saying, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is believe in him who he has sent. So, verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so at this point, if you, if you remember verse 26, they weren't looking for validating signs. But at this point, they're saying, wait a minute, if you are telling me something new, that the work of God is actually faith in you, show me a sign and validate your work. What sign do you now give us? Um, so that we can believe you because what you're saying is not what our elders are teaching us and what th this is not what they're teaching in the synagogue. Show me a sign that I may believe that this is true. What Jesus is saying is mind-blowing to them. This is not taught. And ironically, he actually had just given them the sign of the 5, 000, feeding the 5,000. But with this new teaching, show me a sign. And Jesus said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And, and we're going to see this transition. We've been talking about bread. What is the bread that leaves, leads to life? I am that bread. Okay? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. The bread of God is not manna. The bread of God is he, the person who comes down from heaven. This person gives life, not a full belly. And they respond, Give us this bread always. And Christ gives them the bread in the next verse. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You have seen me, you've touched me, but you still don't believe. So three things that are true, and this is what he's saying. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Coming to him will result in eternal life. He says, you will not hunger, you will not thirst. So these are the pictures of the things we need to sustain us in life. Without food, without water, we die. 
I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you have what you need for life. And the people don't believe it, even though they have seen the bread of life. Why don't they believe? How is it that they don't believe? Verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's will is that his sovereign gift of salvation comes by faith alone. And the object of that faith is the Son of Man, Christ. There are no works. There is no, what must we do to be doing the works of God? There is only faith. Believing in the Son who he sent, that is the works of God. So the Jews begin to grumble and, um, and say, what, what, what is this? I mean, this is ridiculousness. This is, this is foolish. And then they even say, this is Joseph and Mary's son. We know who he is. He's not the son of God. In, in which response, Christ says in verse 17, so whoever believes has eternal life. I mean, I'm sorry, 47. In 48, he says, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I physically am the bread of life. So the Jews argue in 52, how can this man give us his own flesh to eat? Notice how Christ responds. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about literally my flesh. No, look at how he responds. Verse 53, and as I read this, think of this with the mindset of a first century Jew. How would they hear this? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me." This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus, what are you saying? Do you hear these words that you are saying? Now, I'll tell you you what this would mean is he's just saying, I literally, not metaphorically, I literally, in my flesh, am the bread of life. I am the object of your salvation to bring saving faith. Take me to be a part of you. Consume me. That's what Christ is saying when he is the object of our faith. But obviously, that wouldn't be obvious to the first hearers. 
But rather than saying, please clarify what you need, what happens? In verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing this, that they were grumbling, he said, do you take offense of this? And what ends up happening in verse 66? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, I'm out. What I was expecting to hear, what my mind was thinking, what my heart was feeling, I'm not seeing it. I'm gone. This is not faith. But notice in verse 67, what is one who hears the same words with the same context that these other disciples heard and left, the same understanding, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know this assurance that you are the Holy One of God. Even though I don't understand what you just said, even though what you said may seem crazy to my understanding, it's something that my heart can't process to fully understand, you told it to me. And because you told it to me, you are my hope, you are the source of my conviction, you are the object of my faith, and that is why I have nowhere else to go. When we have faith in you, what you say will trump what I think, feel, or believe. This is faith. When we have a conviction and an assurance of things that we don't yet see or understand, we say because his words say it, I believe it. That is why the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There's other verses there that we can look at. But how do we apply this? When we experience the cancer or the unjust or an untimely death, a loss of a job, a loss of a house, a loss of possessions, loss of health, betrayal by a spiritual leader, betrayal by a family member, abuse, neglect, when we experience things and we don't understand them, we look at Scripture, and when Scripture tells us something is true, we say, even though right now I don't feel it, I don't understand it, I choose to believe it. This is faith. Faith is what brings salvation, and faith is what carries us through. Faith alone is the basis of our salvation, and faith alone is the basis of our daily life. This is why 
we cling to faith alone. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would help us and grant us faith and belief in our daily lives. We believe you. Help our unbelief. Amen.